Hi everyone, this is Isadora Martindai at History Through a House. I know some of you are here for the first time, so I'm going to give you a little rundown of what you would usually see and hear, but today is going to be a little bit different. So normally what we do is we talk through Longlands, which is a house we bought a few months ago, and how as we're putting it back together, we're learning more and more about the history of the area that we've come to live in, the history of England. I have a degree in history from the University of Exeter, but anybody that knows anything about history knows You usually specialize in very small periods of it. So what I'm learning now is about the Stone Age and prehistoric man, which is really interesting. And as I'm learning about it, I'm teaching my husband and his cousin, who are both from America, a few things that they might want to know just in case they want to look smart in the pub anytime. Now, the reason why today is a little different is firstly, I wanted to do a bite-sized episode for those that maybe don't listen to podcasts that often, but also because we had a really cool discovery in the old house this week. And I thought it would behoove the circumstances to give it a little bit of a highlight. Anyone who has seen our Instagram, I posted a picture of two very well-masked corona-free men pulling a fire back out from behind a pot-bellied stove. We When we moved into the house, we had been given a historical report done by a very prestigious place called the Keystone Report. And in it, it mentioned Charles I ironwork. Now, it really didn't go into any detail about what the Charles I ironwork was. And we had been laboring under the impression that it was going to be a door hinge or a nail or something of those sorts. So as we've been pulling back the house, we've been paying particular attention to any of the ironwork that we find in the doorways. Anyway... We went looking through a chimney um, to see where a leak was coming from. And as we pulled away the iron back that was behind it, we realized that it was full of engravings and had been cast and we found a C and R on the top of it. Obviously, this was really, really exciting. So I thought it would be time to tell you a little bit about Charles I, Charles II, about firebacks and their history and prevalence in England. And finally, to kind of describe to you a little bit more about the fireback that we have and what you're looking at if you go to our Instagram and see it. Okay, so let's start with Civil War history. Now, in the podcast itself, we're a little bit far off going to the Civil War by, you know, 1600 years. But it, and we will go into it in much, much more detail year by year as we get there. But those that may not even realize, and I'm talking to our more American audiences here, England actually had a fairly big and fairly bloody civil war in the mid-1600s. Charles I, who was king at the time, believed in what is called the divine right to rule. Very simply, it means that our kings and queens of England up until that point were given the right to rule England by God. No one could take it away from them. They were anointed by God, and as such, they were God on earth, which is a really big claim to make. It also meant that they felt that they had complete autonomy over laws. And while we did have a parliament at that point, it was much more of a ceremonial aspect. And the monarch really was the be all and end all of the country. Charles I proved this by marching into the House of Commons one day and arresting some people. Uh, Like I said, we'll go into a lot more detail of it. He was the last monarch to ever step foot in there. And that act on his part kicked off a huge bloody civil war between the Roundheads and the Cavaliers. Yes, the Cavaliers like the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. Okay, so glossing massively over the Civil War, Charles I lost. His son, Charles II, had fled to France. In 1651, Scotland invited Charles II back to be crowned King of England and Scotland. He was put under a whole load of very strict contingencies by the Scots for this honour, and he eventually agreed to do it, came back to Scotland, and started the process of invading England. 
he was not very successful at this point, and he lost a fairly important battle in Worcester in 1651 and had to flee. His flight, which took about six weeks, is most famous for the fact that at one point he apparently hid in an oak tree. Now, this was held to be true, and actually the oak tree in Boscopal House has been is now on its second generation, as the first generation, so many people took souvenirs from it. He would hide up the tree during the day, and at night he would come down. It was a really positive way of handling this, as the house got raided several times while he was staying there, and they never found him. I can't imagine how different our history would have been had someone looked up in that tree one day and pulled the king out of the tree. He continued his flight south, the route of which he has subsequently described to a lot of different people, along with his experiences in meeting peasants and normal folk. And he ended up in Devon, which is where we are. Now, the reason this is important is because Devon, at a certain point, became a real epicenter for the Civil War. And households would have had to have choose, chosen between uh, the Roundheads or the Cavaliers. This house, we were led to believe, had at one point housed Oliver Cromwell. Now, I'm going to do a lot of research as we get closer to this period of history in the long podcast and actually be able to tell you whether we think that is true or not. Either way, to have found this piece of ironwork is kind of startling because it means at some point there was probably a loyalist to the crown who lived here. Firebox. Pretty much as they sound, they are a large piece of cast iron metal that sits behind your fire and it stops your walls cracking. It also absorbs the heat and releases it back into the room. They began to be made in Europe in the 15th century. And by the time we got to the early 16th century, they were popping up in England, uh, along with the introduction of cast iron. They covered a huge variety of different themes. Some of them were allegories. Some of them were much more simple than that, just rope and design aspects. Obviously, the more money you had, the more elaborate the fireback you had was. We have found that our fireback has got Charles I or Charles II's coat of arms on it. Our moral firebacks, which is what this is, were fairly common. This is not a rare thing, although at this point it is much rarer than it would have been during the 17th century as they would have got melted down at various points as they became useless. And our design has very, very specifically got some elements that are useful to know about. There is a fantastic website called Hodges.com, which is a collection of various different firebacks. And actually, we managed to find a casting that our fireback matches there. Their description of it is an arched rectangular shape, cavetio edging, armorial, Stuart English royal arms within a circular garter, crown, motto, and supporters, a crowned lion and a unicorn, with the initials separated by the crown. For those that haven't got access to Instagram and can't see it, I recommend Googling Charles II's coat of arms as we've managed to find the more that that looks much more like his coat of arms than it does Charles I. It's currently, this particular one is currently in Knoll in Stephen Oaks in Kent in England. And it's part of their National Trust group. So it's one of the firebacks there. We haven't had any aging down on ours, um, although I think between the Keystone Report and the knowledge of the house, it's fairly probable to say that it is one of the earlier castings of the ha- of this kind of design, which is pretty cool. So let me tell you a little bit more about why and what this coat of arms was for. The first place to start is really in the writing, which there are two Latin phrases, du et mondrot, which means God and my right, 
which was the motto of the British monarchy and actually one of the major things that they were fighting for. The other one is, and now I'm going to butcher this particular language very, very quickly, honey sot sotikimal ipense, which is the motto of the British, uh, British Order of the Garter. It's French, which is probably why I butchered it, and I should have asked my mother's help. <laughs> but uh, those are the two pieces of writing that are around it. It's Other bits are there is a crown at the top with the fleur-de-lis. Charles II, when he fled, he fled to France. There's a lot of French throwbacks in this. And then we've got the lion and the unicorn, which are obviously the royal standards and symbols. Inside the coat of arms, there is a harp, there are fleur-de-lis, the three lions, and it's undoubtedly a masterpiece of showing somebody who looks at this coat of arms exactly what his lineage is and where his royal allegiances lie. The fact of the matter is he was a half a British prince and half a French prince. His mother was a French princess born to Louis XIV and he felt that he had one foot firmly in each side having spent most of his early childhood in France. We pulled it out and it was in a pretty bad state. Now, this sounds awful, but I've cleaned a lot of old cast iron pans and we actually addressed it in the same way that we would have dressed a cast iron pan, which is I took some very warm oil, some salt, and I carefully scrubbed it. It's now drying out, which is why when you look at it, it's a little shiny. But when we're done with it, it will take pride of place, probably not behind a fire because I want it somewhere much more obvious i love the fact that we have it i think it's a really important part of longlands heritage and british heritage haven't decided where it's going to go yet it's very very heavy originally i was thinking we'd hang it above a fireplace but that got laughed at by a few different people but if i can make them figure out a way to do it i think that's where it might go all right so for everyone that hasn't listened to us before i really hope you enjoyed this little slice of the history and it's very specifically to do with longlands this is just a taster of what we do the longer podcast is much funnier because I'm naturally not that much of a comedian and we go into a lot more depth with a lot more scientific knowledge as to how history is progressing and how on a day-to-day basis we're learning new historical things every day not just in Longlands but as historians as a whole Um, modern science is bringing a huge new understanding to the stuff that we do follow us on Instagram and if you like us try another episode subscribe review us We really, really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. We're going to keep doing it. And guys, if you have any interesting stories, I want to hear those too. Whether they are to do with Longlands or to do with an old house that you're staying in, feel free to get in touch. All right. Thank you very much. Bye.